Father, it is no small task to open up your word and seek to understand it. There are even many people today, Lord, who would affirm the authority of the Bible, um, but when it comes to the hermeneutics, the applying it, the understanding, um, Lord, things can be twisted and changed, and we just confess that our tendency in our flesh is to want to conform the Bible to our own presuppositions and thinkings and convictions and desires and affections. And many times, Lord, we come to a text wanting the text to say something that we wanted to say. And um, we just want to confess that tonight, Lord, to you. And in humility, acknowledge, Lord, that this is your word, not our word. You've declared it to be true. You dictate what it says, how it applies to our life. Your Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us and illumines eyes to see these things and then work in our minds and actually transform us through the renewal of our minds and giving us new affections and desires and giving us the ability, the freedom, the grace, empowerment to actually be able to obey your commands and delight in your word. So Father, tonight as we look at a difficult passage, I pray for just that, your Spirit's teaching. Pray for understanding and wisdom that we would truly learn what you are saying in these things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We were singing that first song, and the thought occurred to me, um, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding. Think about this. Give me understanding, there's a purpose. Give me understanding that I made. Do you remember what it says? Learn. Learn what? Your statutes. All right, think, think about this. Your hands have made and fashioned me. That's, that's really a statement of humility. I'm not my own. Uh, I didn't create myself. I don't dictate what is right and wrong. I don't, I don't give myself purpose. You've made and you fashioned me. Therefore, because of this foundational truth, the psalmist prays, give me understanding. Well, understanding of what? Well, uh, of the reason you've created me, of your ways, of who you are, of the life that I live. Give me understanding, and there, there's a reason. So that, or that, that, this is pointing something, give me understanding, that I may learn your statutes. What an amazing request. Uh, I can relate with the request. I think that you guys can relate with the request. He, he doesn't say that I may know your commandments. There is a difference. And here's the difference. Think about even the context of um, you know, teaching anybody anything, right? So I, I could be up here and I could teach you the rules of soccer. I'm just choosing soccer because I love soccer and it's the greatest sport in the world. So um, actually, that's, that is not a subjective uh, statement either. The world has determined it is the greatest sport, just so you know. Okay, but anyways, if I were to try to teach you, if I were to try to teach you soccer, right, and the rules, and I talk about how there's a middle line, and people are like, well, how does offsides work? And I, I talk, well, there's the, there's the back line of defense, and basically it means as an offender, you can't be behind the last defender when the ball is passed to you. You have to be on this side of the defense, the ball's passed, you can't be offsides on your own half, and, you know, there are times where you can actually, you know, use your shoulder here, and it's not a handball, there's actually a time where you can get hit in the hand, and 
it not be handball because it's kind of, you know, it's in a, in a place where it's normal. It wasn't an intentional handball. And the different, I can begin to ex- express all these rules to you, and I could spend 30 minutes explaining a lot of these rules or statutes or whatever, and you could have an understanding of it. It could make sense. You could know it. But you wouldn't truly learn it until you put it into practice and you acted upon it. And I think when we look at what the psalmist is saying, he's saying, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding, not just so that I may know who you are. Not, not so just that I may know how I'm supposed to live, but that I may learn it, that I may actually then do it. And that's a, that's a big thing that I think John is trying to teach us in 1 John. I mean, 1 John is all about this practical application. Look, if you say you love me, obey my commands. It doesn't say, if you say you love me, quote my commands. (laughs) Right? If you love me, do what I have commanded you to do. So I think that was a a great way to start tonight. And that's a great prayer for us, especially as we look into tonight's text. And there are difficult parts of the text that we want to say, okay, we don't want to just grow in knowledge here. We're asking that God would give us understanding for a very specific purpose, that we would act upon it, that we would obey his commands and actually live out what he's commanding us. So starting in verse 18, are you ready? Here we go. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. Why, you might ask. That it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you, here's the contrast, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Let's read that verse again. This is awesome. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that came from the Holy One back in verse 20, the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you this deception. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. All right. A lot there. I, when I look at the text from a total standpoint, I see several things working in this text. A lot of questions. You see the Antichrist. So one of the questions comes up, who is the Antichrist? And then you see there are many Antichrists. So the question then becomes, are, are there more than one Antichrists? And then you see in verse 18, an interesting hour, children, it is the last hour. Well, let's scratch our heads for a second and think, when did John write this? The end of the first century, right? Almost 2,000 years ago. It's been the last hour for a long time. 
How has it been the last hour for so long, right? Is there confusion here? What does that mean? And then you see that there were those who were a part of the church and then went out from the church and so proved to not belong. So the question becomes, who are they? How do we know who they are? And then we may ask the question, is there a danger that I could leave and prove not to belong? That's a pretty sobering question. These are the questions we're going to deal with tonight. I want to start by giving an overall purpose that I believe is evident in this text. We'll be continually answering each question by pointing back to John's main concerns. And if you remember the purposes that we've already seen in John's letter that we've talked about for several months, you'll see that a huge part of the answer to this question is in what John has already said. So if you, if you think back in your fast flipper, you look at chapter 1, verse 4, John gives a purpose for him writing this, his, his writing this letter. He says, we're writing, we, were, or we are writing these things, why? So that our joy may be complete. Okay, so this letter is so that our joy may be complete. You see in chapter 2, verse 1, he's writing these things to us so that we may not sin. There's a second purpose. In chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, you see a lot of different reasons. Uh, Because your sins are forgiven. I'm writing these things because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing these things because you've overcome the evil one. I wrote these things. Now in in a past tense, I wrote these things because you know the Father. I wrote these things because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And then here in our text tonight, we see two more purposes that, that John brings up. I write to you, he says in verse 21, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. So he's seeking to affirm the truth that we know. And then finally, verse 26, he writes these things to us about those who are trying to deceive us. So the purpose of this text right here is he's trying to, he's writing to us saying, hey, you know the truth, abide, remain the truth. And I'm warning you, there are those among you that's, that's the scary part. There are those among you who are trying to deceive you. Therefore, be warned. And they're, they're going to end up leaving. They will at some point leave if indeed they do not belong. So I want to summarize all that. John is writing this letter. Ready? If we condense that, he's writing it for your joy. Okay? So, in, and we, we talked about this. If you guys remember back to chapter 1, verses 5 through like uh, 10... The first week was like, hey, there's a lot of warnings. If you say, but you do this, then you lie, right? And, and you have a lot of that in the last week. You know, do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, you know, and things in this world, it's fleeting, it's passing. And so you have all these kind of statements like, um, be sure you're in the faith, right? And, and so you think to, to yourself, well, isn't that kind of like confusing? And wouldn't that cause me to kind of like go like just crumble? And oh, well, then how can I have confidence? How can I know? And yet John is saying he's actually writing these things for your joy so that you can have joy. So we have to remember in the back of that, that that there is joy to be had in the warnings. That's a really good thought for us. He's also writing these things in order that you may stop sinning. No longer sin. Don't keep practicing sin. Don't get better at sin. And then he writes these things to remind us of who we are in Christ and to remind us of the power of God available to us. He who abides is the Holy One, the anointing that is in us because of Christ, the Holy Spirit. That's the reminder. Hey, so it's not just, hey, don't keep sinning, but I've actually given you power in which you are free to not sin. You have the freedom to obey my law. So I'm not just giving you a command without the power. John's reminding you there's power available to you. And with all of that, now you look at this text and he warns us. And there, that is a part of why John writes this letter, to warn us. This last pur- purpose makes itself especially clear in our verses tonight. 
If you think back, as we mentioned, 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. Do not practice the truth. Like chapter 2, do not love the world. But even more so here in tonight's passage, it says it's the last hour. You know, if you think about um, Solomon says, teach us to number our days. Paul says, make the best use of your time because the days are evil. He says that in Ephesians and in Colossians. So there's, there's this thought of, hey, you should be urgent as believers in two things. You should be urgent with your sanctification and you should be urgent in your ministry. So you remember, we, we've talked several times that your sanctification in Christ is pointing you somewhere. It is not only about you. It is so that God can use you in others' lives. This, this mission mindset. I remember that was one of your first weeks back, Tyler. We looked at Colossians, and it says, hey, the purpose of your sanctification, God is glorified. People see your good works, and they glorify the Father in heaven. You're becoming more like Christ. You have confidence. You have more joy. You have the fruit of the Spirit, but... Who cares if that's all that that was for in the sense of, why wouldn't you just go to heaven then? We said there's a reason you exist as a believer today, and that you're still on this earth and not in heaven. That is to bring the gospel to the nations, to those around you. And so John's saying it's the last hour. The Antichrist is coming. We'll talk about who that is in a second. Many have already come, he says, and they're trying to deceive you. And there are many among you who will go out from you uh, eventually, and they will show that they never belonged. And that's an even deeper warning that John gives. And I would say that one of the biggest reasons he's writing this last part, when you consider the reminders of the gospel, the warnings of the Antichrist, our joy, freedom from sin, John ultimately, I believe in this passage, is concerned with the believer's perseverance. That's what I see when I look at this text. He, he's concerned with, I desire that you, beloved, would persevere. Now, I'll give you the, the totality of, of really the, the message tonight up on the front end. God preserves his children, and they will persevere. Praise the Lord. So that's how you can have joy. That's how you can have confidence. That's how you can not keep sinning. But in the context of that confidence, John gives a warning. There will be some among you who will show that they were never of you because they will go out from among you. At the end of the day, we look at James chapter 4, verse 12, where James says, look, there's only one lawgiver and judge. That is he who is able to save and destroy. And then James says, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, this passage has been taken out of context many times, right? That does not refer to accountability. I should be in your life and saying, Jordan, you're being lazy, man. I'm not judging. I'm just saying, come on, push into sanctification. He's not lazy, by the way. I used you because you were like the greatest guy in here, right? Nobody's going to believe that. All right, so Jordan, come on. I, I can actually hold you accountable. I can even, if I, in, a, in a sense, come and bring Christian discipline in your life. That's not what James is referring to here. What James is referring to is the fact that we can never truly know someone's soul. That's what he's saying. In other words, I don't know who here is genuinely saved, and maybe some who may have never confessed Christ, maybe some who have confessed Christ, but it's all just this easy believism, and there's never actually been true repentance and a God granting and giving life to somebody, because just because someone professes to be saved doesn't mean they are. You do realize that. It's like three-quarters of America that professes to be evangelical Christians. I don't think so, right? 
In fact, we probably all know even our own lives, people at one time seemed to be strong and passionate in their faith, but today they're about as far away as Christ as you could be. You probably know people in your life who fit that bill. So John is revealing this warning. He's writing to professing believers, the church, but there's a warning here. Don't say you have fellowship with him while you walk in darkness. Don't continue to sin. Don't be deceived by these antichrists. Many are going to leave the church and prove to never have truly belonged. So you, you brothers, you brothers, what do you do with this? Endure. Persevere. Cling to Christ. Abide in God and his word. So before we land there for the night, that that last exhortation, before we... And there, now that we've shown kind of the purpose for the text, I want to answer some of the questions that we posed. Who's the Antichrist? Don't answer. That's rhetorical. All right, who's the Antichrist? He brings it up. Verse 18. It's the last hour as you heard that. This is, um, this is a, like, it's a direct object. That Antichrist. John is not throwing this term out there like, It could be anything or anyone. No, he's referring specifically to somebody, a man who will come, a a man of lawlessness, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. Now, ironically, John is the only one in the Bible to mention the name Antichrist. You won't find that anywhere else in Scripture except in John's epistles. So the question becomes, who is he? And and to answer that question, we we then need to look at what John says about him in the totality. We should probably also at this point address that many of us have been, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to maybe be bold here, but I, if I were to poll this room and your belief about the end times and things like the rapture and things like the Antichrist, I, I bet I would have a lot of responses that really have kind of been created even in the last couple hundred years. We've, I, knew, I know myself, I grew up kind of believing that Revelation should be interpreted through left, the Left Behind series. <laughs> that, that actually is just not true. I, it's creative and it's unique and whatever. Um, but it should be said that many of us may have been led astray by some of those teachings, okay? And we may have a false understanding about eschatology or end times, what's going to happen at the end. And so we think about Antichrist, and we think this blonde German guy who's going to, Nikolai, right, is that his name? Anybody see the Left Behind series? Okay, one, two, maybe three. Okay, well, cool. Maybe you haven't been led astray. Anyways, yeah, it's like this blonde guy who's going to come into power, he's going to rule the world, and this is smart, and it's all this kind of stuff. And there's a lot of things to interpret here. There's a lot to be said for what that looks like. But um, there has also, I just want to warn you, been a lot of, creation and coining of terms and, and theologies and beliefs and doctrines about this in just the last couple hundred years, the last two centuries. I mean, you, rapture is a, is a brand new word. And, and you, I would encourage you to go and actually look at the beginnings of the word rapture and the service that it came up from a, a woman professing this utterance uh, from being moved by the Spirit, she says, like, almost in a new revelation kind of a way. I mean, it's a dangerous word, actually. And, and yet Southern Baptists are just like, rapture! You know what I mean? Especially if you go in the South, I, I mean, no offense, but really, Southern Baptist in the South is, is all about end times. I mean, it's like every message is Jesus could come back today. Jesus could come back tomorrow. The rapture is going to happen. And it's, it's like that's the constant preaching. And you think to yourself, well, if Jesus comes back tonight, there's about over a thousand people groups that are going to have to have some kind of a conversion in the next 24 hours. And so it's, it's just this false understanding of biblical theology. And it's, I think, wrongly preached often. Uh, and people don't realize the roots of a lot of this type of stuff. So I'd, I'd encourage you 
to go to the Word and be diligent about what the Bible teaches about end times and, and, and the Antichrist. And so I want to look at this Word. I want to answer the question of who is the Antichrist. And I want to do it by looking at just what John says because John's the only one to use the term. So here in chapter 2, verse 18, John says the Antichrist is coming. Now, the Antichrist is not the many that have already come in the same verse. There is a distinction. In other words, there is that, this one Antichrist who is coming. Already, many have come. We'll talk about that in a second. So th- these you'll, you'll end up seeing were forerunners in, in many ways, and we'll explain what that means to the Antichrist. Verse 22 gives us a good beginning definition of who the Antichrist is. It says, the Antichrist is the liar who denies the Father and the Son. Okay. So the Antichrist is the liar who denies the Father and the Son. Now I want you to flip, flip to 2 John. It's only one chapter, so I want you to go to verse 7. 2 John, verse 7. It tells us, the one who does not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, so the uh, incarnation, is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now there's... There's one more passage in 1 John that deals with the many antichrists that we'll get to in a second. And there's one in, in uh, 1 John chapter 4 we're going to go to in just a second. But I want to sit just in these two verses because this is what we have as far as this word is used in the Bible. The antichrist. Those are the two main verses. Revelation does not mention him by name like this, the antichrist. It mentions the beast, but it, not the specific name. Paul mentions, as I, as I mentioned before in 2 Thessalonians 3, the man of lawlessness. But again, it's not the same term or name. Daniel prophesies about this beast and this man, but he does not use the name. So this really, what I just read, is what we have as far as the antichrist. The antichrist is a liar. He is a deceiver who denies the father and the son and denies the incarnation. That's who the antichrist is. Now, probably to some of your guys' liking and probably to some of your guys' uh, not liking, that is where we're going to end our discussion of the Antichrist tonight. Because the text is not about the study of end times or the Antichrist. This isn't a study of Revelation. We're going through 1 John. There's a purpose John brings it up tonight. So to, be go, to go beyond this would be to go beyond our text and John's purpose in this context and would not be helpful for our purposes. So that's what we know. The Antichrist is a deceiver. He's a liar. He rejects that Jesus is the Son of God, does not confess him, and he rejects the incarnation. Boom. That's the Antichrist. Left behind the new series. Okay? I'm just kidding. The next question, though, about the Antichrist, so to speak, is... Is there more than one? You know, it's like amazing. If you go to a lot of like Christian websites, you have like, you know, remember, don't, don't forget, Barack Obama was the Antichrist uh, two years ago. And then, you know, now it's uh, Donald Trump is the uh, Antichrist. You know, they used to believe Hitler was the Antichrist. Pope Francis I is the Antichrist. I mean, you have, <laughs> just get out of here. So you have all these ideas. And so the, here's the question. Is John saying that, I've heard this said many times. Satan, because remember, nobody knows the day or the time, except whom? The Father. Not even the Son knows. The Father will direct him. Now, that's an interesting conversation uh, in regards to the Trinity, right? Uh, But regardless, here you have Satan, then it would be argued, does not know when Jesus is coming back. So many people have put forward, I don't necessarily think that it's completely uh, irrelevant, but that Satan has had prepared an antichrist in every generation. 
Oh, it's an interesting conversation and probably an interesting discussion and debate. Uh, again, has nothing to do with this passage. It is to- totally not what John is saying here. What he's not saying when many antichrists have come is that there has been, you know, and uh, you know, like Nero was the first antichrist. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden we have all these generations and and all these people have been, been antichrists in case Christ comes back. That that's not what John is saying here. When you look at this, you see verse eighteen: many antichrists have come. Okay, there's one other place that I mentioned that John mentions antichrist or antichrist. It's in First John chapter four. So flip to chapter four with me. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. This, this gives us the key of who these antichrists are. It says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Well, what? The mention was the spirit of the Antichrist, not the Antichrist here. So the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world already. Now this is helpful because here we see that every spirit, implying more than one here, it says every spirit. So that's, there's an implication. You have many of these spirits, many Antichrists. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus as God or says that Jesus is not from God is rather revealing or is revealing they have the spirit of the Antichrist. So think about it today. I mean, you could look at Jews that are not Messianic Jews and say, no, Jesus was not the Christ. They, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. You would look at, you know, um, Islam, who says Jesus was a prophet. He was not the son of God. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. I mean, John, when you think in that context, well, yeah, many Antichrists, if that's the spirit, have indeed come. Verse 5 in the same chapter, 1 John 4, says that these antichrists are from the world, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Well, now you can think even more so. I mean, look at all the religions that deny Christ as the Son of God, deny the incarnation, reject Him as Lord. Many, many antichrists all throughout the world, and the world is listening to them. They're deceived. They're under the lies of the devil. Think back to 2 John. And remember that this Antichrist is a deceiver and a liar. So his spirit that finds itself in many other Antichrists is a lying and deceiving spirit. They have the purpose of leading people away from the truth. So is there more than one Antichrist? The answer is yes and no. It is. There is only one ultimate and final Antichrist. That is the man of lawlessness that Paul refers to. It is the beast that you find in Revelation chapter 13. There is one, one of those, Satan's man, that he will raise up in that time. But there are many today, and who have lived and who will live, who have his spirit, who reveal the spirit of the Antichrist ever since the last hour began. This actually shouldn't surprise us, right? Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is what? Against me. And then he he goes even further. He he goes even further with the statement. He who does not gather what? Scatters. So Jesus makes an unbelievable statement in Matthew 12. There are a lot of people who would say, you know what? Well, I I don't necessarily believe in God. I'm, I'm not... I'm not a Christ follower, but it's not like I'm like trying to get rid of Christianity. I'm not, I'm not a hater of God. I'm, not, I'm just kind of like indifferent. And, and Jesus is like, there is no middle ground here. 
You're either for me or you're against me. You, you either have the spirit of God or you are living according to the spirit of the Antichrist. Because you're rejecting that Jesus is God. You're rejecting him as Lord. You are a liar to yourself, a deceiver to yourself. And through the way you live, you are a liar and a deceiver to others. I mean, that's a scary thing. But I think that is really what John is getting at here. Because think about this. He's, he's not even going into the world. He's saying many Antichrists have come. Oh, and they're in your church. If you look at the context, it says that they, who? Who's the they? These Antichrists have gone out from among you. So, so this, isn't, this isn't even like people who are just utterly rejecting God. And we're going to talk about the danger here in just a second. These are people who for a while found themselves in the body, and it was not clear that they were of the Antichrist. It was not clear for a long period of time. We'll talk about one that actually became to an awareness. So there are many people today who even think they're for God, who are actual scatterers, not gatherers. It's intense. Remember what Paul says about those in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 through 4. I'll show you even more so how those who are not belonging to Christ really are of the spirit of the Antichrist. Verse 3 through 4 in 2 Corinthians 4 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? What's happening? In their case, the God of this world, I do disagree with James White on this. The God of this world, you do too. Okay, cool. Okay. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why? Why is Satan doing that? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So Satan is doing this. He's not only hiding the beauty of Christ. He's hiding the fact that Christ is God. Hiding the fact that Christ is the image of God. Well think back to the spirit of the Antichrist. It denies that Jesus is God. It rejects the incarnation. The same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 2. You've heard these verses before. Beginning in 20, verse 24. Paul tells Timothy, a pastor. He says, hey, correct your opponents with gentleness. Right? The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Then watch what he says here. God may perhaps grant these opponents repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Now watch verse 26. They may come to their senses. This is a, this is a big, big word here, okay? May come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Meaning this, the opponents of the gospel are under the snare of the devil. And they have been captured by the devil in order that they may do the devil's will. We actually, as Christians, should see the seriousness of this. I mean, you think about 1 Corinthians, why Paul says, warns against, hey, or 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, when he warns against, don't be unequally yoked. Think, think about this now, right? Right? I, I mean, why? Because if I'm unequally yoked, I am yoking myself as, as a person, as the Holy Spirit in me, with a spirit of the Antichrist. With somebody who's denying Christ as Lord. Somebody who is, now it gets even worse. As an unequally yoked person, I, if I'm a believer, am yoking myself with somebody who has been captured by the devil to do the devil's will. And Paul's saying, don't yoke yourself to that. Why? Because Satan seeks to steal and kill and destroy. You don't think that Satan, part of Satan's will, capturing him and blinding him, is to destroy you? And John is saying what? To lead you astray. 
to deceive you, to bring you into their lies. So there's no room for just thinking that this is, you know, uh, it's no big deal. I've got Christ and, you know, it's the world is the world, but they're not that bad. No, I mean, you really do have a huge dividing line. The Holy Spirit in believers and the spirit of the Antichrist in non-believers. You have those who are belong to God have been saved and captured by him, praise the Lord, to do his will, and those who are blinded to the truth of the gospel and are under the snare of the devil being captured by him to do his will. So, if you belong to Jesus, you gather. If you belong to the devil, the spirit of the Antichrist is in you and you scatter. All right, next question, because we're, we're leading to a really key point for our, t- for our time tonight. I just want to address really quickly, this, this doesn't have a lot to do necessarily with tonight's topic, but I want to address the last hour. Verse 18, in the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Okay, so the Antichrist, the, the ultimate, the man of lawlessness, the beast, is coming in the last hour. It's been the last hour for a long time. We're still living in the last hour today, right? So the question might be, how do you know that and why so long? You might want to, if you're a fast flipper, you can go ahead. I'm not going to wait for you to flip there. If you want to jot it down, uh, you can. Acts 2, 16 through 17 says, This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and I quote Joel, In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is Pentecost, okay? But it's referring to Pentecost as being the last days. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 Paul says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down. What was written down? These Old Testament stories were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul's saying again, the end of the ages has come. Now Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 2, you know it long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But what? Verse 2, in these last days... He's spoken to us by his son. So Christ coming and speaking is the inauguration of the last days whom he appointed the heir of all things. Hebrews 9, 26, as it is, the same pastor says, he's appeared who? Jesus has appeared once for all when? At the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So again, you see, this is not the, sec- this is not the return of Christ. This is the crucifixion of Christ. The end times, the end of ages, the last days. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 21 says that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest when? When was the incarnation? In the last times, for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Paul reveals to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that we're living in the last days, days of godlessness. So you see, the last days began with Christ. So today we are living in the last days. So you may have the question, well, If we're living in the last days, and the last days will continue until God has reconciled everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then why so long? And the the answer was in the question, right? Why why so long? In fact, this was a question that was asked in the beginning of the last days. Peter addresses this question in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. What's the promise? His return. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. In other words, a lot, of people, a lot of you are going, in fact, if you remember the early church, and if you look at like Paul's letter in Romans, he was eager to go to Spain. Why? He believed there's the end of the world. If there's converts there, Christ is coming back. And this was like, this was the urgency of his mission journeys, all three of them. He wanted to bring the gospel to the world so that Christ, were, look, they were ready to go home. <laughs> to live as Christ, to die is gain. 
Paul wanted to go, amen, right? I mean, I feel that. We want eternity. I'm ready to go home. But the reality is, is it hasn't come yet. And so you might be saying, come on, Lord. I mean, think about the apostles. He says, I will be coming back. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And yet the end of the age has begun now. So they're going, why haven't you come back? And Peter says, look, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you are counting slowness. He's patient towards you, the you is beloved, not wishing that any of you, beloved, should perish. So the question is, why are we still in the last hour? It's that reason. Revelation 13.8 reveals that there is a book, book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That book was written before the foundation of the earth, and in that book was written every name whom God would redeem whom God purposed to save and to lay himself down for on the cross. And what Peter is saying is, God is not willing that any one of those should perish, but that every name written in the Lamb's book of life will come to repentance and know Christ. Why? Because Christ died for them. And so if, if they're not, if Christ should come back today, then guess what was insufficient? The cross. And so Peter says, Look, he's not slow. He's not willing that any of his own should perish. If you think about John chapter 6, you, you have this thought that uh, it is the will of the Father. I think it's verse 39. Jesus says that I should lose none whom the Father gives me, but raise them up on the last day. So now that we have answered some of those questions, I want to go back to John's purpose and answer the next question we find in this text. Who were the ones that left the church and proved not to belong? Look at verse 19. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Okay, so who's the they is the question. Because in verse 18, verse 19 has to refer to verse 18, but there's three Peoples, you see in verse 18. First one is children, plural. Antichrist, singular. Antichrists, plural. Okay, so the fact that verse 19 is using the third person plural, they, eliminates what? The Antichrist, okay? So the they in verse 19 is not referring to the man of lawlessness, especially since that it says that, uh, verse 18, that he is coming, meaning he hasn't come yet, right? And, and we know that it can't be the children... Those, those who are truly children that will go away because he loses none, right? He, in fact, the reason he hasn't come back yet is because he's not willing to lose any of his own. So it has to be these antichrists. So when you read they in verse 19, you could read it as, as it says this. The antichrist went out from us, but the antichrist were not of us. For if the antichrist had been of us, the antichrist would have continued with us. But the antichrist went out that it might be complained that the antichrists are not of us. Okay? Now we mentioned, again, don't, don't, don't interpret this as, yeah, Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Pope Francis and Hitler and all these, you know, this long line, all these, you know, maybe, <laughs> such so stupid. Uh, maybe all these antichrists of every generation have gone out. No, no, he's saying, those who are not of Christ, these people, those who are not truly of God, will 
If their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they will go out from among us. And he's saying there are some in your body. The ones who left the body so proved to not belong to the body are the Antichrist. They are those who lie, deceive, if the spirit of the Antichrist did not truly believe that Jesus is God, nor that he has come in the flesh for the sins of the world. So there's a couple things to note here, okay, as we come into our final lap. Yeah. A few things to note here. Number one, th- this is important. Number one, these people were among the body. Let that soberly sink in your brain. It, it would be like if John were writing Cornerstone today and saying, don't be deceived, right? Don't fall prey to the spirit of the Antichrist. There are those who are among your body that went out, and there are those, the assumptions that will go out from your body. And we would all kind of, like, if we were, if, and imagine, remember, this is, this is read for the churches. So imagine, like, Pastor Jeff on Sunday morning going, I have a word from the Lord, Apostle John has written us today. Many of you are antichrists and will leave. <laughs> you know, Kim would be like, is it Amy or me? Like, what, what, you know, be like, what is it Topher? Is it Juice? No, it can't be Juice. It's probably Courtney. No, it can't be. You know, it's like, it's, I mean, think about that. That's, so, that's sobering. That's shocking, isn't it? And so the first thing to realize is that these antichrists were among them. Second thing to notice, it gets crazier. It was not clear at one point that they did not truly belong to the body. It was not clear that they did not truly belong to the body. In fact, it wasn't clear that they weren't actual believers until when? They left. We'll talk about that in a second. Third thing, the reason that they did not remain is because they did not truly belong. Why? Christ loses none whom the Father gives him. So number one, let's look at these questions. These people were among the body. Many of these people have come. Many are alive today. Many more will come. They are among God's people. They are in our churches. This is why Paul gives warnings and John gives warnings in 2nd and 3rd John as well. Do not be deceived. Think about it. It's easy for me to listen to someone outside of the church and know that they are speaking nonsense, right? I, I can look at my, uh, my friend who maybe is a Muslim and say, I, what, what you're saying about Muhammad is nonsense. Like I, just, I, just, I know that I can study that. I can see the word of God rejects that. I can look at the credibility and the reliability of what you consider to be scripture and say, there's no reliability here. I mean, I can, I can break down arguments both logically and but then ultimately by God's word and say it's false. But if I have a wolf inside my church and inside my body whom I've enjoyed fellowship with, whom I've sung with, whom I've fought against sin with, who I served with, who have grown to love and respect, and they begin to teach me false things, what? I'm more easily swayed. That's why John is making this a big deal. I mean, this is no mistake. Paul makes this abundantly clear. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says this specifically. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at verse 12, and 14, 12 through 14.
Paul says, beginning in verse 12, 2 Corinthians 11, what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Paul says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise, look at verse 15, that it is no surprise if his servants also, who, 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 look at me, the antichrists, it is no wonder, no surprise, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. That, that literally is what we have just seen in 2 John. They will go out from us to show that they were never of us. What? Their end will correspond to their deeds. And they are disguising themselves as servants of righteousness. Why? They've been captured by Satan. To do his will. Well, what does Satan do? He disguises himself as an angel of light. That is why we talk about wolves in sheep's clothing. Makes it very clear. And the purpose is that they can take as many with them. That's the warning. Number two. As I mentioned, it was not clear that these antichrists did not belong to the church until they left the church. That's the scary thing. We can't always tell who they are until they leave. And they may not ever know also themselves that they are that way. That's what's even more shocking. Remember Paul's word to Timothy about correcting those opponents in such a way? What? That I, I mentioned, we get back to this, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. In other words, they are not in the right sense. They're out of their minds. They're blinded. Those who are deceived by Satan... Don't know they're deceived. Uh, I, I'm going to show you how in just a second. The Bible teaches that those in the flesh are truly blind. They are deceived. They, are, they deceive because they are deceived, right? They believe they are right. Here's why. There's a big difference between these antichrists and demons or even Satan. Big difference. Satan knows who Christ is. Satan knows Jesus is the Son of God. Satan knows Jesus became flesh. Satan tried to ruin through the cross and didn't realize that his own scheming, you know, R.C. Sproul will always say, you know, Satan's like a, a lackey on a leash to God, just using him as, as he sees fit. But Satan knows who Jesus is. Also, James 2 tells us something about the demons. This is why he's not referring to demons here. Even the demons, what? Believe and shudder. The demons know who Christ is. So who are the ones who don't? It is not Satan or the demons. It is those who are under the blinding, deceptive will of Satan. The truly blind ones. The 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. People today who reject God really do reject him because they do not believe in him. What did Jesus pray on the cross? Forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. Even the soldiers and the Jews who were crucifying him didn't understand the depths. In fact, it was the soldier who got had mercy on then had eyes to see. The one thief on the cross then had eyes to see. And once they saw, what? They saw him as glorious. It was repentance. It was born again faith. 
And, so, and, and that's what we talk about. When we think about irresistible grace, we, I, I've been talking on, on Sunday morning in our, small, in, our, in our life group. The question is, well, if God elects, do those who come to God truly have a decision? Yes, they do. God graciously has given them that, and they're not going to choose anything else. It's like if you take a blind person who cannot see to the Grand Canyon at sunrise, and then all of a sudden never seen anything, and there he is in the morning, 5.30 a.m., whenever the heck the sunrise happens during the time of year, and all of a sudden the blind man is given sight. No blind man is going to go, eh, too much colors, not interested, caves. No. What's the blind man going to do? I've tasted and I've seen the sunrise, the canyon is good. That's what we talk about. So the reality is the Bible teaches, that's 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. When God opens eyes, they see Christ as beautiful and respond. Therefore, those who do not respond to the gospel do not see. Nobody sees Christ as glorious and then just decides to be a deceiver or a liar. That is impossible biblically. And so here we have these antichrists. That's the thing. They may not even know that they're being deceived or that they're lying and deceiving others, that they're under the control and power and blindness and deceptive will of Satan. If you look at Hebrews 6, we get even more insight. Chapter 6, verse 4 through 6 says, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So you may say, because I believe that that's a non-believer. When I look at Hebrews 6 and the totality of God's word, I don't build a, a, a doctrine off of those three verses. I look at what the word of God says as a whole. And so I have to believe, looking at the totality of God's word, that these people who left in Hebrews 6 are not genuine believers. But you may say, well, Dave, can a non-believer actually have that kind of resume? I mean, look, look at that testimony, Hebrews 6. Because I believe the answer is yes. A non-believer clearly can have this kind of testimony. Remember our passage tonight? They were among us. It wasn't even evident that they didn't belong until they went out from us. And I, I just want to make that clear. If you look at 1 John chapter 2, just so you don't think I'm just saying this. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, and now watch this, the end of verse 19. This is, this is the purpose part of the statement. John says, they went out from us. Here's the purpose, that, okay? There's a reason they went out from us. They went out from us that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, it wasn't plain until they went out. Do you see that? So it's not always plain. Think back to Hebrews 6. There are people, non-believers, who can have a surface-level intellectual understanding of the Bible and the gospel. They can look at creation and believe in a higher power. They can share in the Holy Spirit through the fellowship of the saints. They can see the Spirit of God work, right? And yet reject God. They can taste that the Word of God is good. They can, and that they can see that the Word of God brings hope and peace and love. And by the way, this is why people who reject the Bible as the ultimate authority still cling to it as a helpful guide. This is why all worldviews who reject Jesus and the Bible as the ultimate authority still use the Bible. Right? You can taste that the word of God is good. But these people, 
can even show signs of repentance and change. But they're not of Christ. And it won't be clear until they leave. Which leads to the final point, and I'm going to piggyback on that. They did not remain because they were not truly of the beloved. As I mentioned before, John says in John 6, or yeah, John says in, John records Jesus saying in John 6, verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Listen, those who preserve, persevere to the end are those whom the Father preserves until the end. Ephesians 1 says that true believers have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of their inheritance. Remember 1 Thessalonians 5, that he who calls us is faithful. He will surely sanctify us completely. And then what does it say in verse 23 and 24? We will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a great hope and a great warning here. John means for those who have false assurance to be terrified to death. In fact, when he's writing this letter, he wants the wolves in the congregation, the Antichrist, he wants to scare literally the hell out of them. That's the purpose here. And yet, true believers, he wants to have the genuine hope and confident assurance. So the question becomes this. Which should I have? How can I have confidence? How can we be sure and know that we are among the beloved and not those who will leave? Because indeed, John is writing these things that our joy may be full and that we may no longer sin, but have hope in the gospel and that we may not be deceived. So, in order to do that, I want to give one warning, okay? And we're going to pick up on a lot of this in two weeks. But let me give you at least a teaser so I don't leave you here. (laughs) All right? If you look at verse 20, it says we've been anointed by the Holy One and now have knowledge. Verse 21 says he is writing not because we don't know the truth, but because we do know it. So his means here really is to encourage believers. Basically, if we want to persevere, let what we know and what we have heard from the beginning, ready, abide in us. And then as a response, we will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is what John is saying. Verse 27, the anointing you receive from him abides in you. Therefore, now the command, just as the anointing teaching has taught us, abide in him. Here's the key. We, we've talked a lot about abiding, delighting, obeying. Non-stop. It's been a huge part of our year. And indeed, it's, it's a huge part of our church, the direction we will continue to go. It is our philosophy of ministry. It's how we see the Bible, not because we're trying to bring this view to the Bible. But we, when we look at the Bible, we see that those who love God abide in Him. They delight in Him. And based on that, they joyfully obey God. But First John reveals something very important to us. And if you look at those who are among the body and then left, You see this. The assumption would be, since there are many people who are in the body who were deceivers and liars and and ended up leaving, that they would be, and and if it wasn't plain to the rest of the body that they were of the Antichrist, you would say, well, they must have been abiding. And actually, there's probably a form of obedience. Think about the Pharisees. Think about the scribes and teachers, right? They had an obedience. Think about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. 
He knew the word of God, so there must have been some form of obedience. And he says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, well, obey the commandments. He lists several of them. What, he, what does the guy say? I've done that. I've obeyed these. And Jesus didn't dispute that. He didn't refute it. In other words, the assumption is, yeah, he did actually, at a face value, surface level, obey the commands. So you can look at the rich young ruler and go, well, the rich young ruler was abiding. The rich young ruler was obeying. What was the hiccup? Then he says, knowing the issue in the guy's heart, knowing what Jesus really means by the law, he gets to the heart of it and says, go and deal with your idols. All the things that you love more than me. You want to be saved? You're not going to work yourself into heaven. You're not good enough. It's why I came to earth. If you want to be mine, I am your delight. I am your treasure. So Jesus, knowing that this rich young ruler's idol was all he had, he says, go sell all that you have. This wasn't a go do this work and then be righteous. Jesus was showing, you don't have eyes to see me as beautiful. The difference would be the parable of the man. He went, found a treasure in a field. Remember what happened? In his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference between the rich young ruler and the man who finds the field? What's the difference? There's a difference before the delight. Because the delight is only possible if something happens. You could argue both maybe have, we're abiding. Uh, when we talk about abiding, we're, we're talking reading the word of God. We're talking meditating on the word of God. We're talking those practices of fellowship and prayer. I mean, someone who's seeking to be, Hebrews 6, they're in the body. First John chapter 2, they're among the people, right? I mean, you think about the scribes and the Pharisees again. These people, you want to talk about abiding in God's word? The scribes and the Pharisees were abiding in God's word. They knew it like the back of their hand. It was their job. And they were obeying at a surface level. There was an obedience. So what was the difference between the man who did not want to rid himself of his possessions and the man who did? And you may say, well, clearly it was delight. And I would agree with you. But John is saying here in 1 John 2, there's something that precedes that delight. Something that has to happen. And you see it here in verse 20. You have been anointed by the Holy One. And then when you look at verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And in 1 John, later, chapter 4, verse 4, it says, little children, you are from God, have overcome them, the antichrists. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So how do God's children persevere? God is abiding in them. Before I can truly and biblically and rightfully, obediently abide in God, and truly joyfully obey him, before I can have the delight, before I can be like the man who finds the treasure in the field and goes and sells all he has, God has to abide in me. It is impossible. And this is why there are those in the church who went out from among the body. The holy, anointed one did not abide in them. And here's the warning that we're going to talk about in two weeks. It is possible to muster up a form of man-made righteousness. 
and change and repentance and even a renewing of your mind. That is not the work of the Spirit. And that is what we see with these men and these women who were in the church, these antichrists who had come and left. So the warning, what we'll talk about in two weeks is, how do I know the fruit that I'm bearing is fruit from the Spirit? And one of the things that I would leave you with tonight, I'll leave you with an illustration. And you guys can talk in small groups. And again, I, I, I want you to come back in two weeks because maybe this is too much of a cliffhanger because you want to know, well, how do I know? I want to have confidence. And you should have confidence. John wants you to have confidence. The Bible teaches that if you're in Christ, you should have confidence, right? So I want you to have confidence. I want to give you one warning. And we're going to talk about all the commands in two weeks of make every effort, continue what you've learned, examine yourself. We're going to look at all of those. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. But I want to leave you with an illustration that John Piper gives about apostasy that I think is really good. I think that this can summarize those who went out from the church. He gives the example of a vulture. Vulture's in the sky and looks down on a piece of ice that is in the middle of this. Many of you have already heard this, so just tag along. Those of you who haven't, remember this. It's this long, rushing river, and there's a patch of ice with a carcass on the ice. And, and this vulture comes down, he swoops down, and he begins to dive in, okay? And, and the illustration here is the carcass is sin, okay? You're the vulture. <laughs> there's a waterfall coming at the end of the stream. That is destruction. That is the ultimate death, okay? That just, I'm, I'm, I'm painting you the picture of the illustration. So the, the vulture, the illustration is the vulture comes down. Vulture's got wings, can leave anytime he wants. He knows he can't stay there long. It may not even be ultimately about what he's doing, but he's sitting there. He's just digesting all he can. Every now and then he looks up to see how close he's getting to the end, and he's thinking to myself, I've got plenty of time. I can leave anytime I want. All of his vulture friends are going, arr, arr, arr. That's, that's a bark, not a vulture cry. Uh, anyways, all of his vulture buddies are in the sky going, Get off the carcass. Get off the carcass. The waterfall's coming. Meanwhile, the carcass or the vulture's going, I got wings. I can leave anytime I want. I got this. Don't worry about me. And there's warnings. Stop what you're doing. Leave. Turn the other way. Get off. I got this. I can do this. And so all of a sudden it's going and it's going and it's going. And the ice block comes to the very, very end. And it's just about to tip over the waterfall and the vulture goes to push off his feet and jump up into the air and get away from the carcass before he falls into destruction. And what happens, he's been there so long, his feet have frozen into the ice and he falls to his death. I think that's a great illustration for anybody who would hear the gospel and want to still live in their sin. The warning is, you are not as strong as you think you are and you don't have as long as you think you do. Listen to the warnings. Turn to Christ Repent from your sin and be saved. Otherwise, destruction is knocking on the door. The Antichrist are trying to deceive you and lie to you. Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. And every person today who is in hell is there because ultimately they rejected and rebelled against a creator God. They indulged in sin that they loved more than our glorious creator. They did not have eyes to see. They were blind to the truth. But if you've heard the gospel, you have an opportunity to respond to that truth and to leave that sin. Two weeks, we're going to talk about how then do I know that the fruit I'm bearing is genuine, spirit-filled fruit. All right, we have small groups tonight. We'll stay in here, but those, depending on the group that we have, we can split up into two. Otherwise, we'll stay in here. I'm going to close this in prayer. 
and then we'll be dismissed, okay? Father, thank you for the opportunity this evening to look at your word. I pray for a fruitful time of discussion. I pray that we would hear the warnings in Scripture and that we would jump off the ice block of destruction that has taken us to our death, that we would find you to be more glorious than anything in this world, that we would not be like the rich young ruler, but that we would be like the man who found the treasure and in his joy went and sold all that he had. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.